Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com slash give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of ours. There should be some under the seats on the end of each row. If you are using one of our Bibles, the page number should be up on the screen behind me to help you find it. Uh, while you're getting to Luke chapter 1, uh, I thought I would just brag on you guys real quick. Can I do that? I thought you guys might be okay with that. Surprisingly bashful, though. Uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, So as many of you guys know, this past week was what we call our best first week ever for the University of Tennessee students that are back on campus now. Yeah, got a few UT students in here. Uh, So basically what we did is six out of the last seven days, we were on campus or near campus doing something, hosting an event, giving out free stuff. I think one day we gave out like 400 Starbucks Frappuccino, which was like uh, liquid gold to college students, right? Uh, Another day we gave out 500 Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits. Uh, Just to be clear, those things were all donated to us. We did not pay for those. Uh, If we paid for those as a church, we would go broke as a church, but those were donated to us, and then we gave them out, Uh, but we were just all over campus doing all sorts of things just to love and serve and bless and connect with UT students. The part I wanted to brag on you guys about, though, uh, was this past year, we had more volunteers help us out with Best First Week Ever than ever before. Over 40 of you guys volunteered your time this week. Uh, I actually had our college resident, Megan, figure out just like the collective number of hours that you guys gave just this past week to best first week ever, over 200 combined hours that you guys just stepped up to the plate and served. So I wanted to say thank you uh, to those of you that served. To be honest, this is one of those things that just makes it an absolute blessing to be one of your pastors, like an absolute joy, because it seems like any time we offer some kind of opportunity for you guys to serve a, a needed area of our city, you guys just step up to the plate. Like you guys just jump at the opportunity. So I want to say thank you for doing Doing that. If you were out there, I know probably a lot more of you wanted to be out there, but you couldn't because of work schedules or whatever, and that's fine. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. We could not have done that without you. Uh, and if you're a college student and you're here this morning and you're thinking, wait, I didn't get any free stuff this week. I don't know where you guys were, but you were not where I was. Uh, don't worry. Right after this, directly after the gathering, we are going to take any college student that wants to go right down the street to Sweet Peas for lunch, and we are paying for lunch. So if you want something to eat and you don't have lunch plans or you had boring lunch plans and you want to cancel them, whatever you want to do, uh, meet us out at the patio out front and we'll walk down to Sweet Peas and treat you to lunch. So just didn't want you to miss out on some free stuff. So that's on offer after the gathering. Uh, And really all of that is just sort of our way of saying uh, we value you, college students. We want to help you grow in your discipleship to Jesus. We're super glad that so many of you are a part of our church family. And those of you that are new, we want you to find a place at home within our church family. And so that's our way of saying all of that. That's why we do the ridiculous things that we do every year around the beginning of the semester. So uh, if you were here last week, we began a brand new teaching series called I Just Can't Believe where what we are looking at is some of the most common objections and obstacles that people have to faith in Jesus, to Christianity as a worldview. And as we mentioned, uh, obviously part of the reason we are doing this series is for those of us in the room that would say we struggle with some of the truth claims of Christianity, those of us in the room that really wrestle with some of the more difficult claims of our faith. But we also mentioned that the other reason we're doing it is because even if you're here and you would say you've never really struggled with these types of objections or obstacles to faith in Jesus, chances are you are going to come across people who do have these objections, right? If you are living a life on mission, if you're building relationships with your coworkers and friends and classmates that don't know Jesus, you are going to come across people with these objections 
to Christianity. And so part of what we're doing in this series too is trying to equip you guys to have those conversations well whenever they come up. And so that's kind of what we're doing with this series. Uh, Last week, what we did was talked a lot about that, and we also talked a lot about the relationship between faith and reason, and how those two things are often not as opposed to one another as a lot of people assume that they are. And so that's what we mentioned last week. Today, we're going to move on to one major objection that a lot of people have to faith in Jesus, and that's the objection to the authority of the Bible. For both believers and non-believers alike, there is generally an understanding, there's a consensus that to be a Christian, you have to treat the Bible as an authority over your life in one way or another. Whether a person is a believer or not, they usually understand that that's kind of part of the deal. And for a lot of people, that is a problematic view to hold, the authority of the Bible. Because for many people, when they read through the Bible, they find some of the ideas in the Bible to be at best outdated and at worst regressive and outright harmful to our society. People read the Bible and they read about things like polygamy and patriarchy and slavery and sexism and all sorts of other things. And they read stuff like that in the Bible and go, man, I don't even like some of the stuff in this book, much less do I want it to be an authority over my life in any way. That's where a lot of people are at in regards to the Bible. And so today, I want us to talk a little bit about that particular objection. But first, before we talk about the Bible being authoritative or not authoritative, we should probably clarify what we mean by the word authoritative, right? We should probably figure out what exactly Christians mean when they say that the Bible is their authority. Um, Specifically, I think it's worth saying that what Christians generally do not mean when they say the Bible is their authority is they generally do not mean that every line and verse in the Bible is still binding on our lives today in the same way that it was back then. Uh, Very few Christians actually believe that. Let me just show you why I say that. There are laws in the Old Testament that would forbid God's people from wearing clothing made out of mixed fabrics, multiple different types of fabrics. I have yet to meet a Christian that is just racked with guilt over wearing a poly blend tee, right? I have not met that Christian. Maybe you have, you can introduce them to me. I have yet to meet that follower of Jesus. There are other laws in the Old Testament that would prohibit God's people from eating certain types of seafood. I have never invited another Christian to a seafood restaurant and had them turn me down out of a conscience issue on that verse, right? Uh, Even some stuff in the New Testament. So uh, Romans 16, I think it is. Uh, Paul tells the people in the Roman church to, quote, greet one another with a holy kiss. Not a single one of you guys kissed me when I walked in here this morning. And just to be clear, that's not a request, okay? I'm I'm fine with that. But none of y'all did that, right? So I think even today, we interpret that verse as something like, greet one another with like a holy Christian side hug, right? So my point is that hardly any followers of Jesus, when they say that the Bible is authoritative, mean that every single line and verse in the entire Bible is still binding on our life today. Most Christians, rather, when they say that the Bible is authoritative, they mean something like this. They mean that the Bible is true, that the Bible is trustworthy, and that it has some sort of bearing on our lives as followers of Jesus, that it's true, trustworthy, and has a bearing on our lives. I think that's what most Christians mean when we talk about the Bible being authoritative. So this morning, I want us to start by just talking about the authority of the New Testament. Can we trust the authority of the New Testament in the Bible, the part of the Bible that starts with Jesus's life? Now, we're eventually going to talk about the Old Testament as well before we're done. And it's not that the Old Testament isn't important. It's just that the New Testament is the part of the Bible that explicitly tells us about Jesus's life. And most Christians would agree that Jesus is sort of the interpretive key to understanding the rest of the Bible. So I want us to start by asking the question, can we trust the New Testament. A lot of people would say that we cannot trust the New Testament. A lot of people think it's not trustworthy at all. Now, generally, when people say that, they have one of two reasons that I have heard of most often. 
Some people say that we cannot trust the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament because they were never meant to be understood as historical facts. A lot of people would say that the New Testament was actually meant to be some, to- some type of myth or legend. So think like Aesop's fables or certain types of Greek and Roman mythology. That, that they're good in as far as they have moral lessons in them that we can learn from, but they were never meant to be understood literally as historical facts. That's the first reason I hear people give most often. The other reason that I hear people give for why we cannot trust the New Testament is that maybe at one point the New Testament was historical fact, but somewhere along the line, decades or centuries later, somebody got a hold of the original manuscripts and they essentially tampered with them in some way. That somewhere along the line, there were some people in authority that wanted to consolidate power, or maybe they wanted to try to control or manipulate people. And in an effort to do that, they took these very normal stories about a guy named Jesus from Nazareth, who was a good moral teacher, and they added in all this other stuff about the miraculous and claims to be God and the resurrection and all these things that seem unplausible to us today. A lot of people would say that maybe originally they were historical fact, but they got messed with along the line somewhere. And usually for one of those two reasons, people tend to cast doubt on what the New Testament tells us about Jesus. So first, I thought it would be helpful to just let the texts of the New Testament speak for themselves. Before we jump to any conclusions, before we look at stuff from outside of the Bible, let's let the New Testament speak for itself. So in theory, you're open to Luke chapter 1. This is the opening paragraph of the Gospel of Luke. This is how Luke, the author, chooses to start his account of Jesus' life. Follow along with me, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, a couple things I want you to notice about those four verses that we just read. First, notice the overall tone and language that Luke uses in what he just said. Does this start off like you would expect a myth or a legend to start off? Not really, right? This is not how a legend would start off. You start fiction, you start legends and myths with stuff like a long time ago, or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Or once upon a time. You don't start myths or legends with, it seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time to write an orderly account for you. You don't use phrases and myths or legends like, so that you may have certainty about the things that you have been taught. So this intro to Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke doesn't read much like fiction or fairy tale or legend at all. It sort of reads like researched, verified, historical accounts. The second thing I want you to notice is that judging by his language in this passage, Luke, the author, is apparently a skeptic's skeptic. He seems like the type of guy who takes nothing at face value at all. If he was around today, no doubt Luke would be the type of guy that every time you throw out a fact or statistic, immediately Googles it to see if you're lying, right? That's who Luke was. So he says here essentially in the passage, yeah, I know a lot of people who are eyewitnesses have documented things that Jesus said and did for sure, but I wanted to go and do some research for myself such that Luke has content in it that is not in any of the other three Gospels because he went and did his research. He went and interviewed eyewitnesses that nobody had interviewed yet. That's just the type of person that Luke was. So Luke isn't just hearing things that other people say and adding it automatically to his account. He's taking things that eyewitnesses say and he's checking them against other eyewitnesses to see if they're legit or not. In other words, if you are skeptical about the claims of Christianity, Luke is probably a guy that you want to read from because this guy does his research. He doesn't set out to repeat myths or legends. He sets out to confirm and verify historical facts. So all that taken into consideration, you can choose to believe that the book of Luke is a myth or a legend 
of some sort. You can believe that if you would like to. But that is to completely ignore the stated intention of his historical account. It's to completely ignore why he said that he wrote what he wrote in the book of Luke. And so unless you've got a valid, trustworthy, reliable reason to cast doubt on what he says, I would argue that's not a fair way to read historical literature of any type. It might not sound plausible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. Seemingly implausible things happen all the time in human history. That's why we write things down. In fact, you could argue that part of the reason Luke went to all this effort to write down the things that he did is because no doubt some of it probably sounded implausible to him as well. That's why he went to all this effort to research it. Now, on a similar note, I also want us to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn over there with me, 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bibles. Um, we'll also put it on the screen for you if you don't want to turn there. Uh, here, Paul is talking about Jesus' life and death, but specifically about Jesus' resurrection. And I want you to pay careful attention to how Luke presents everything that he's about to say in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start reading in verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. So Paul's focus in this passage is on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, of all the things in the Bible that seem hard for us to believe today, the resurrection is pretty high up on the list, right? Understandably so. Claiming that someone came back from the dead after three days is a pretty massive claim for someone to make. But one thing I always think is funny is when people cast doubt on the resurrection by saying things like, well, now we know that resurrections don't happen. The reason that's funny is because I think people back then also knew that resurrections don't happen, right? Like there was a lot they hadn't figured out yet at that time in history, but I think they knew that dead people stayed dead. So it's just interesting that people cast down on it from that perspective. But I think specifically the way that Paul brings this up is really, really interesting because Paul doesn't take for granted that people will believe the resurrection. He actually grounds it in eyewitness testimony. He says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter and then to 12 disciples and then to over 500 more people. 500 more people saw the resurrected Jesus. And in fact, 500 people who at the time of Paul writing this were still alive. So at the time of Paul writing this letter, literally hundreds of people that saw the resurrected Jesus were still alive and could speak to the, how verified that particular historical event was. Meaning the people that read this from Paul could go and check with those people to see if it was true. Now again, if Jesus coming back from the dead is meant to be a legend, you don't put stuff like that in there. There's no reason to, it's counterproductive. If the resurrection was something more like an allegory for victorious living or something like that, then Paul wouldn't have said, go talk to these several hundred people who saw the resurrected Jesus. That's not how legends read. Like at the end of the story of the Little Red Riding Hood, the author doesn't say, hey, if you go to Clinton, Tennessee right now, you can talk to people who saw the little girl get eaten by the wolf. Like, you can go see it right now. That's not, that's not how legends read because the purpose of legends are not to be verified. So the fact that Paul uses this logic, uses this rationale from the way that he talks about the resurrection tells us that Paul actually intends this to be historical fact. Now, Maybe even with all of that, you're not convinced. Maybe you're thinking, well, even those two accounts that we just read from Luke and 1 Corinthians, even those could have been tampered with or added on later. So if that's you and you still struggle with that, let me just go Bible history nerd level 1000 on you for a second. For those of you that are overwhelmed by this stuff, feel free to like check your email or Instagram or something for 30 seconds. Here's the truth about how the Bible was compiled. The four Gospels, 
the four early accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So that leaves plenty of people still alive to verify them or contradict them. Paul's letters, letters like 1 Corinthians, most of them were written just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So when Paul says, hey, you can go check with these people who saw it, that is not an empty promise for Paul. Because this letter was already in circulation 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He meant that those people really could go and verify that Jesus had raised from the dead. And I'll just add this, and then we'll move on. If you actually do the research, you will find that we have more manuscripts that attest to the reliability of the New Testament than most any other writing from that time period. So plenty of other things around that time period, things that we have manuscripts from people like Homer and Plato, there's only about 30 to 50 manuscripts that were in circulation originally for those things. When it comes to the New Testament, we have over 6,000 manuscripts. And there's really no debate over the reliability of Homer and Plato's writing, but somehow there is debate over the Bible. So when it comes to the reliability of the New Testament, there's actually good reason to believe that it's reliable. So if you choose to reject the claims of the New Testament, it's not nearly as simple as just saying, these things seem implausible to me, right? You actually have to contradict a lot of evidence to the contrary. So to sum up, if you're looking for good reasons to trust the New Testament, there are actually plenty of those reasons out there for the taking. There really are. But all that being said, I know that a lot of people's problems with the Bible reside not with the New Testament, but with the Old. After all, that is where we find more examples of things like polygamy and slavery and patriarchy, the things that people tend to get hung up on. So when it comes to the Old Testament, let me just give you three important considerations to make in how we read and interpret it. When it comes to the Old Testament, how are we supposed to understand some of the more seemingly troublesome things that it says? I'll give you three different things to keep in mind. First, some of it is descriptive, not instructional. Some of it is descriptive, not instructional. In other words, some of the Old Testament isn't condoning what happened or approving of what happened. It's simply describing for us what did happen. Does that make sense? Much of the Old Testament is not trying to hold up for us perfect moral examples for us to follow. In fact, it's quite often the opposite according to the Bible. So take a look at this verse with me from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. There, it says this, now these things, and in context, that's talking about many of the things that happened in the Old Testament, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So the Bible itself tells us that some of the things in the Old Testament aren't there because they're noble or exemplary, actually quite the opposite. A lot of them are there so we know precisely what not to do, right? We know how not to live. For instance, the stuff you'll find in the Old Testament about polygamy. It's really easy to read through some of those stories, specifically in the book of Genesis, and go, wait, so God was just okay with these men having like multiple or even hundreds of wives and concubines, and he was just okay with them exerting all this power over women as a result? Like God was just okay with that stuff happening? And the answer is, no, he wasn't okay with that. And if you really pay attention to the stories that include polygamy, you'll pick up on how it highlights all the carnage and the destruction that resulted from that practice. The Old Testament will often go out of its way to highlight that stuff. So just because the Bible says it happened does not mean that God approved of it happening. At times, the Bible uses narrative to expose the horrors and abuses of certain practices that it contains. A lot of times in the Bible, when we see really horrific things happen, they're not there because God approves of them. Often they're there because the authors are exposing them for the evil that they are. Often they're there because of that reason. Now, it might be easy to miss that because sometimes the Old Testament doesn't just come right out and say that that's what it's doing. 
It doesn't say explicitly sometimes that it's exposing them for what they are. It often uses narrative to make its point. But if you think about it, this is actually how most good storytelling goes about something like this. So uh, think about it. At the end of the famous film Schindler's List, there's not a disclaimer that comes on the screen that says, by the way, the producers of this film are against the horrors of the Holocaust. That's not how it does it, because it's assumed from the way they depict everything that happened that they're exposing it for what it is, that they're exposing the evils that occurred. They don't have to come right out and say, we disapprove of this, because it's assumed that that's what they're doing in the story. So in the Old Testament, when you read through stories of things like polygamy and favoritism and sexism, pay very careful attention to the story, not just to what they are telling you explicitly, but to what they are showing you about what happened, to what they are exposing about the characters and practices in the story. Because much of the Old Testament is descriptive, not instructional. Second thing to keep in mind as you read through the Old Testament, if you really are wanting to understand it, much of it requires knowing the cultural context. Much of it requires knowing the cultural dynamics at play at the time that the passage is written. So for instance, a lot of us read passages in the Bible that talk about slavery, maybe in both the Old and the New Testaments, and we find them extremely troublesome by our standards today. It seems crazy to us that when the Bible talks about slavery, it says anything other than abolish it completely and immediately, right? It just seems so incomprehensible to us that it doesn't just say that. What you'll find if, is if you dig in much to the cultural context of those passages, what you'll find is that slavery in a lot of ancient cultures didn't really resemble the type of slavery that we think about today at all. It wasn't racially motivated like American slavery was. It didn't start with one group of people capturing another group of people and forcing them into labor like American slavery did. If you actually pay attention, there were actually a lot of pretty significant differences between what the Bible means when it talks about slavery and what we think of as being slavery today. In a lot of ways, slavery back then had more in common with what we would consider indentured servitude today, or even some things more in common with the modern-day workforce than it did with 18th and 19th century American slavery. Now, I realize that's a whole can of worms on its own, right? So I'm not going to go into all of that today, just for time's sake, but we did do a teaching last year at the end of our Ephesians series that was all about kind of breaking that down and how the Bible talks about slavery and how to understand it and wrap your mind around it. So if you want to study further on that, feel free to go back to our website and grab that teaching. My point is that many of us read these passages in the Bible that give instructions to slaves and masters, and we just write the Bible off as unreasonable. But to do that is to read our own cultural context into the Bible. And you can't really do that with any type of historical literature. You have to understand the cultural context at the time that it's written in order to really understand what it is and isn't saying. So just as a really silly example, uh, you and I would not read a verse in the Bible that said Jesus grabbed dinner with his disciples and assume that what that meant was they went through the drive through and ate their dinner on the way down the road to wherever they were going. We wouldn't assume that because we know that's not what ate dinner means in that context. Well, in a similar way, we can't read all of our assumptions about a concept like slavery into an ancient context. We have to try to understand the context in which it was written, and then we can decide whether we approve or disapprove of it. But you have to first understand the cultural context. That's true with a lot of the Old Testament. And finally, third thing I'll give you on how to understand the Old Testament. Some of it is temporarily authoritative, and some of it is permanently authoritative. Some of it is temporarily authoritative, and some of it is permanently authoritative. So this is probably the most complex idea when it comes to understanding the Old Testament. Often, understanding what it's trying to say comes down to knowing which of it is permanently authoritative and which of it is temporarily authoritative. This is what we alluded to earlier. Very few people actually believe that the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, is meant to be binding on all people at all times. Very few Christians believe that. 
especially when it comes to many Old Testament laws and regulations. They had a purpose for a time, but they were never meant to be binding for all people at all times. Now, before you guys think I'm a heretic, let me show you where I get this from in the Bible, okay? Galatians 3, starting in verse 23, says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, in other words, now that it is possible for us to be made right with God through Jesus, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay, confession time. How many of you got lost in what that verse just said? Anybody willing to be honest? A couple of people. Yeah, I got very lost in it the first few times I read it. Here's what it's saying. This is actually really helpful in regards to how we understand some of the Old Testament law. The imagery he uses is that some of the Old Testament law served as a guardian. Now, we probably wouldn't use that word today. We would use a word like a nanny or babysitter. That the law was meant to be sort of a babysitter for a certain time for God's people, meaning that it served a good purpose in its original context, but it was never meant to be binding on all of God's people at all times. So think about it this way, just to sort of use his word picture for it. Anna and I currently have a three-month-old and a three-year-old. So anytime we leave the house without our kids, we leave a babysitter there with them, right? It keeps them from dying. It keeps horrible things from happening, them playing with scissors, any of those amount of things, right? So usually what happens is if we leave the house without our kids, one of you guys or a few of you guys stay at our house with our kids. And that is a fantastic way for us to operate as a family when our kids are three years old and three months old. It will not be a great way for us to operate when our kids are 30 and 33 years old, right? So if when our kids are adults, if we still have to leave a babysitter with them at the house when we leave, we have done something horribly wrong as parents, right? Because that shouldn't be required at all. Because hiring a babysitter is a great thing for a time, but it's not a great thing permanently. Well, Paul says in a similar way that there are laws that were binding on God's people for a time for certain reasons, but they are no longer binding for God's people today. They were meant to be temporarily authoritative, not permanently authoritative. So let me give you just a couple examples of this, how this plays itself out. Uh, one example of this would be uh, the prohibitions on eating pork in the Bible. So the book of Leviticus explicitly forbids God's people from eating pork and various other types of meat. But in the book of Acts, God explicitly lifts that restriction on God's people. So college students, if you were going to walk down to Sweet Peas with us after this and grab like a huge rack of ribs, which you totally should because it, we're paying for it, remember? If you're going to do that, let me go ahead and tell you, you do not have to repent after you eat those ribs, okay? Because that prohibition has been lifted on God's people. I'll give you another one, slightly more uncomfortable. In the Old Testament, God's people, the men in God's people were required to be circumcised. But then in the New Testament, there's an entire book of the Bible that is almost exclusively devoted to describing why that is no longer a requirement for followers of Jesus today. So here at City Church, we do not require circumcision for membership, which, praise God, because that would be an awkward policy to enforce, right? Because that prohibition no longer is in operation for God's people. It served a purpose for a time. It was temporarily authoritative, but it's not permanently authoritative. That being said, though, there are other parts of the Old Testament that are permanently authoritative. For instance, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. That one still counts, right? The command uh, not to murder. We're still going to hang on to that one, right? Or we'll get a little more controversial with this next one. The Old Testament law to treat the foreigner among you as a native, that one still applies, contrary to what a lot of Christians would have you believe by their behavior. There is plenty of the Old Testament law that is still very much authoritative over followers of Jesus in today's world. Some that is and some that isn't. 
So that raises a question, right? It raises the question, how do we know what parts of the Old Testament still count and which parts of the Old Testament do not still apply or are not still binding on our lives today? To be honest with you, that is not a super cut and dry question to answer. But I'll give you some things that should help in an awful lot of situations. For our intents and purposes, I'll give you two guiding principles to know what parts of the Old Testament still apply and which don't. If the New Testament affirms or confirms something in the Old Testament, it still applies. If the New Testament clearly fulfills it or changes it, it no longer applies. So the New Testament affirms it or confirms it, still applies. The New Testament clearly fulfills or changes it, it no longer applies, or at least does not apply in the same way. I know that does not clear up every single instance of interpretation of the Old Testament law, but it should at least give you a start. That's a good operating principle. So there you have it. A few things to keep in mind about the New Testament when it comes to authority and three specific things to keep in mind when it comes to understanding the Old Testament's authority. Now, I fully realize that that does not answer or speak to every single objection that people have with the Bible, right? There's a lot out there to cover, and we don't have time to get into all of it today. Probably not by a long shot does it cover all the objections that people have. But I do think that it gives us some help with an awful lot of it. I think it helps us with a lot of understanding the Bible as followers of Jesus. And really, more than anything, even if you got lost in some of that, more than anything, I give you all of that to show you that there are ways of understanding the Bible. There are ways to understand the authority of the Bible. There are answers and responses to a lot of our hang-ups when it comes to the scriptures that we hold in our hands, if you're willing to consider that those answers are out there. If you're willing to consider that the Bible contains those answers and that there are answers to how to understand it for your life today, there are ways to understand it. There are intelligent people who have written books upon books upon books about how an informed 21st century critical thinker might wrap their mind around some of the more difficult claims in the Bible. There are answers if you're truly wanting to understand the Bible. So if you're a person who genuinely wants to understand it, that should give you something to go on. If you're willing to consider that the answers might be out there, there are answers out there to be found. But here, I think, is the problem for a lot of people, and maybe even for some of us in this room, when it comes to the Bible. I think the problem is that a lot of us actually don't want those answers. I think a lot of us actually don't want to understand the authority of the Bible. For some of us, we've wanted to understand it, and we've just had a hard time getting there, right? And, and my hope is that a lot of today has been helpful for those of you in the room that are in that spot when it comes to the Bible. But for others of us, I think we've simply wanted to reject the authority of the Bible, and along the way, we've found plenty of opportunities and justifications for doing that. And I think that really gets at a deeper problem that may be going on in a lot of us. Some of us take issue with the authority of the Bible because we have an issue with authority in general. It's not actually specific to the Bible for some people. For some, it's not so much that we have scholarly, research, thoughtful objections to it. It's just that we don't like the idea of anything or anyone, let alone a 2,000-year-old text, telling us what to do. I think for some people, that's actually the core of the issue. I heard someone put the problem this way recently about millennials specifically. And I am a millennial, so this is a self-critique, okay? Don't email me about this. But somebody said this about millennials. They said, millennials don't have any problem with authority so long as that authority is themselves. I thought that was pretty accurate, at least for a lot of the times what goes on in my own heart, Right? I think that's probably true for a lot of us, regardless of how old we are or what stage of life we're in. The Bible would say that part of the problem with us is that by our nature, we suppress the truth. I mean, we don't actually like the idea of anything having authority over us, much less the Bible. For many people, there's just this innate opposition in our hearts towards anything outside of ourselves telling us how we should or shouldn't live, right? Right? 
And that's not just a problem we have with the Bible. That's a problem we have with Jesus himself. With him and his claims about who he is and how he designed life to work. And for those of us with that underlying issue, the issue with authority in general, I think it comes down often to just arrogance or humility. Arrogance or humility. Are we going to assume that we, with our limited experience and our limited understanding, are we going to assume that we are the end-all, be-all? Are we going to assume that we should be the final authority on everything that happens in our life? Are we going to assume that there is a good and loving, compassionate creator God out there who designed life to work in a certain way and therefore our lives work best when we come under his authority? So in light of that, I would submit to you that when becoming a follower of Jesus to begin with, the question worth asking is actually not, first, can I get on board with everything in the Bible? I would argue that's not the question you ask when deciding whether to become a follower of Jesus. That's not where you start. Eventually you have to get there, but that's not where you start. You start with the question, can Jesus be trusted? Can Jesus be trusted, period? Is the authority of Jesus good authority or is it bad authority? Plenty of us have seen our share of examples of bad authority, right? Plenty of examples out there of bad authority, the type of authority that demands blind obedience without establishing trust first, the type of authority that demands blind loyalty without putting any skin of their own in the game at all. We've seen bad authority, and so a lot of us can't help but wonder, okay, is Jesus's authority bad authority? If Jesus says, I have to come under his authority and the authority of the scriptures, is, is his authority bad authority? I would argue it's not that type of authority at all. In fact, I would argue it's quite the opposite of that type of authority. For example, there's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to his disciples about authority, and he sort of lays out his vision for what authority should be, how authority should function. And what he says is that his authority, Jesus' own authority, isn't the type of authority that rules with an iron fist. That's not what he's after. He's not after the type of authority that manipulates and controls other people with power. That's not the type of authority that Jesus walks in. Instead, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, whoever wants to be greatest should become the servant of everybody else. That's what authority looks like in God's kingdom. And Jesus doesn't even exclude himself from that. God in the flesh does not even exclude himself from that type of servant authority. Take a look at Matthew 20, 28 at the end of that passage with me. Jesus says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives us a crystal clear picture of what his brand of authority is all about. It looks like giving up his life for the sake of others. Jesus came to be the type of authority that offers up his life as a ransom for other people, for the good of other people. The type of authority that allows himself to suffer greatly for the benefit of those around him. The type of authority that doesn't demand loyalty from anybody without putting skin of his own in the game. In fact, Jesus put all of his skin in the game when it came to how he exercised his authority. His is the type of authority that goes to the cross to secure the freedom of those that he loves. Now, I would argue that is the type of authority that is worth trusting. The type of authority that gives up everything in them for the good of other people, that is a type of authority that you can trust. That's a type of authority worth listening to, submitting to, giving our lives to because he's shown us that he can be trusted. That's the type of authority that Jesus walks in. And once you get there, once you realize that you can trust the authority of Jesus himself, then trusting the authority of the Bible becomes a very logical next step after that. If you can trust Jesus, 
then you can start to get on board with trusting the authority of the Bible. Andrew Wilson, a pastor and author in London, he puts it this way in his book, All About the Authority of the Bible. Fantastic book. I would highly recommend it to you. It's called Unbreakable. He says this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too. If Jesus is your starting point, that shifts your perspective on the Bible. Andrew Wilson continues. I really liked his book on the authority of Scripture, by the way, if you couldn't tell. Here's what he says later in the book. The point is, whenever Scripture challenges some of our deeply held belief, as it often does, we have a choice. We can challenge the Bible or we can let the Bible challenge us. We can do a Jefferson on it. So there he's referring to Thomas Jefferson, who supposedly physically cut out parts of his Bible that he didn't like. He says we can do that with the Bible, cutting out the bits that we like and bending the rest. Or we can do a Jesus on it. I love that language. Affirming the accuracy of the Bible in spite of the difficulties we have with it and allow it to refine our view of God, the world, sexuality, or whatever it may be. Affirming the accuracy of the Bible in, fa- in spite of the difficulties that we have with it. I think that's a good model for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, a good model of what it looks like to come under the authority of the Bible. I think the way he puts it in that quote is so very helpful. Those really are the two options that we have when it comes to the authority of the Scriptures. So I'll just tell you this, I'm a pastor, which means part of my job is to teach this book and help you guys understand this book, the Bible. And that being said, if I'm completely honest, there are plenty of times that I don't inherently like what this Bible says. There are plenty of times that I read stuff and I go, man, I don't know about that. There are plenty of times where I take issue with the stuff in this book, but the question that will define me and will define every single one of us in this room is how do you respond when that happens? How do you respond when you read things in this book that you don't inherently like or want to get on board with at first read? How do you respond in those moments? Do we wash our hands of it and just walk away because it's difficult? Or do we consider that maybe the author of this book has a perspective that we're missing? Do we operate on the assumption that maybe he sees things from a slightly different vantage point, a better vantage point than we do? When you look around the room today, those of us who are here and would call ourselves followers of Jesus, it's not because most of us have resolved every single issue that we have with the Bible. That's not what's going on in this room. It's not because there aren't any parts of it that bother us or confuse us at times. None of that. The people in this room that have decided to follow Jesus, it's because we have found Jesus to be compelling enough and gracious enough and trustworthy enough that we're willing to wrestle with the parts of the Bible that we're not so sure about on first read. So I say that in order to tell you that if you're here and you also find Jesus compelling, but you just don't think you could follow him because you have questions and confusions about some of the stuff in this book, all I'm saying is that it's possible that you may be starting in the wrong place. Possible that you might be asking the wrong question. You do not need to have the Bible 100% figured out to trust in Jesus. You simply need to find Jesus trustworthy enough to walk through your issues with the Bible. Peter himself wrote in one of his letters that some of the things in Paul's letters were, quote, hard to understand. If there's room for him to say that as a fellow author of the Bible, I think there's room for those of us here today to say that too when it comes to the Bible. The question is simply, do we trust Jesus enough to work through our questions and issues with the Bible? That's what I would encourage you to consider today. So let's close by asking for the Spirit's help with that.
Father, I know that uh, this one is often a tough one for our culture. Just for where our, our society is at currently. God, it's tough because there are things in this book that are confusing. Um, that are hard for us to understand. Hard for us to agree with. But God, we know that you gave us this book for our good. That we might discover who you are. And how gracious you are and how trustworthy you are. And how you walk with us through our questions, just like you walked through questions with thousands and thousands of people that came before us. And so God, I pray that um, for those of us today that take issue with some of the things in this book, regardless of where we're at with you, God, I pray that you would demonstrate yourself to be trustworthy enough to work through those issues. God, we know that any quality relationship takes work, it takes understanding, it takes patience, it takes, takes asking and answering questions. And so God, I pray that we would be willing to do that when it comes to our relationship with you. God, that we would let you be patient with us, that we would let you speak to the questions and the objections that we have, whether that's directly to us or through other followers of Jesus or through other people that you've put around us. God, I pray that we wouldn't feel like we have to hide any of these obstacles, any of these objections that we may have. God, and more than anything, I pray that in the pages of this book, we would discover you. We would discover the love of your son, Jesus, who gave himself up for us as a ransom for many. And God, that through the safety of that relationship, we might wrap our minds around some of the things in this book. So God, would you help us? Would your spirit open our eyes to be able to do that? We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.